Uh, But let's pray uh, as we come to God's word now. Father God, we thank you that when you speak, it's for our good. And so we pray that tonight you would confront, challenge and comfort us. Father, please give us focus, wisdom and understanding by your spirit. And please help me in my weakness to speak clearly and faithfully as I should. And that you would be glorified, Father, in the preaching and hearing of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It seems to me that anxiety about the future is becoming normal in our society. Uh, The Sydney Morning Herald uh, published an article called The Future Looks uh, Bleak for Young People as the World's Problems Pile Up. They cited global markets, domestic wars and climate change as the major causes. Uh, In fact, so dodgy is internet security that after reading these articles about being anxious for the future, I got a notification about an article I might like to read called Can We Live Forever? How to Stop Aging. I didn't read it because I would have had to pay to subscribe. Uh, In his what's been called a masterful documentary, A Life on Our Planet, David Attenborough says he is casting vision for the future when he says our planet is headed for disaster. And it seems that 2020 has really exasperated many of these concerns. There's anxiety about our economy, about the mountains of debt that we have created, anxiety about many for whom businesses and jobs did not survive the repeated lockdowns, and the list continues. And although it would be nice to just sit back and think these are the problems of other people, I think most of us have or will experience this. Uh, I felt this quite recently as my wife and I rushed around different kinders to look at an option for our son Thomas to enrol in next year. What if we chose the wrong one? What if he doesn't like it there? What if he doesn't like the teachers? How should we decide what's more important? On the one hand, the impressive toy espresso machine and the mini cafe, or the large array of Transformers toys? I was really torn. And of course, this was all compounded by each teacher at each centre reminding us that if we don't enrol, he will certainly miss out. There is no shortage of things that can trouble us when it comes to the future. Will I pass uni? Will uni really set me up for the job that I want? Will that job actually be satisfying? Will I be able to buy a house? Will I get married? Will I be healthy? And I imagine right now on your heart or in your mind, you have things that you are worried about for the future. And yet, I imagine that for a vast majority of our world and perhaps many of us here tonight, concern for what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 5 and the return of Jesus in judgment has scarcely got a look in. But it is central to the teaching of Jesus and to Christianity that not that Jesus just came, but that he will certainly come again. And so living in light of the end of Christ's return is central to following Jesus. Paul began exploring this question last week, back in chapter 4, as he addressed what happens to believers who die before Jesus comes back. And tonight we remove from what happens when we die to what happens at the end itself. It seems that for the Thessalonians, the return of Jesus was very much on their mind. Uh, Perhaps some, even many of the congregation had died. 
And this mixed with their ongoing experience of persecution and suffering may have had them wondering, how long is this going to go on for? When will Jesus come back and end it all? And so Paul comes to address that question tonight and to reassure them that Jesus certainly will come. And he does it by that sneaky classic technique of telling them that they don't need to know about it, only to then go on and tell them all about it. So verse 1, Brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Uh, We've heard over and over again that Paul's time with the Thessalonians was quite short as he got driven out of town. And yet, clearly, teaching them about the return of Jesus, it was a vital aspect of what he covered when he was with them. And it seems that fascination with the dates and times of Jesus' return has got a long and somewhat entertaining history in Christianity. Many have sought to predict the exact moment that Jesus would come back, which just seems crazy if they would just listen to Jesus. Because Paul is drawing on Jesus' own words that could not be clearer. In Matthew 24, up on the screen, Jesus says, about the day or the hour, that is, of his return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I will certainly come again, says Jesus, but as for when... I don't even know. And so Paul doesn't need to write to them about the dates and the times, but he does want to develop their understanding of Jesus' coming. We see that in verse 2, where he calls the return of Jesus the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, it's spoken of and anticipated throughout the Old Testament, and often with a fairly similar, if not the same, emphasis. The day of the Lord is final, It is the last act of history, the supreme act of judgment where God himself will show up to defeat his enemies once and for all and call the whole world to account. And this day of the Lord is the return of Jesus. It's why Paul calls it the day of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1. It's the same event that we were looking at last week when Jesus will return and raise his people from the dead to be with him forever. But now the focus is on the other side of the coin as it's on judgment. It's why the pictures that Paul uses in verses 2 and 3 are negative. He's focusing on those who are not ready, not expecting Jesus to come. Because you might find it strange to describe Jesus as coming like a thief in the night. But Paul is drawing again on Jesus' own teaching, and the point is not that he comes with bad intentions, but that his coming will be both sudden and a surprise. No thief announces the day and time that they are going to come. And so we read verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, I have limited experience with labor pain, and uh, only as a spectator, but I think the point is pretty clear all the same. Labor is painful. It often comes on without warning, and it is unavoidable. And the same is true for Jesus' return in judgment. It will come and it is unavoidable. 
That point is made chillingly clear in those final words of verse 3. They will not escape. And so here we come in 1 Thessalonians to one of the most awkward, confronting, politically incorrect, and yet one of the most pressing truths of the Bible. That those who reject Christ will suffer the wrath of God forever when he returns. This is a reality that we all need to reckon with, especially if you're here tonight and not yet a Christian. Uh, In his great book, The Rage Against God, Peter Hitchens details how he was led uh, to faith out of atheism. Uh, He tells of when travelling in France, he came upon the 15th century painting called The Last Judgment. It's up on the screen. While looking at this painting, at first he says, I scoffed. Another religious painting. Couldn't these people think of anything else to depict? But as he gazed open mouth at the figures in the picture in agony, he continues, these people did not appear remote or from the ancient past. They were my own generation. He says, I did not have a religious experience. Nothing mystical or inexplicable took place. No trance, no swoon, no vision, no voices, no blaze of light. But a catalogue, a large catalogue of misdeeds, ranging from the embarrassing to the appalling, replayed themselves rapidly in my head. And I had absolutely no doubt that I was among the damned. And so why does Paul remind the Thessalonians of what they already knew? Because there is a difference between knowing it and knowing it, of actually getting it, of having this reality shape your life. Because in reality, it is so countercultural so ignored or scoffed at by our world at large that it's easy even for Christians to say, I get it, but then move on. Especially when our world is saying, as quoted in verse 3, peace and safety. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, the Roman world was marked by peace and safety. The Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, was written on the coins and on monuments to remind everyone we live in good times. And when living in prosperity, in peace and safety, as we certainly do, the temptation will always be to just live for the now, to forget about the future, even when the future might hold confronting things. Our culture is so driven by the narrative that suggests live for now, live for yourself because you deserve it and you might miss out on the better life. But central to the gospel of Jesus is that he will come. He will bring final salvation as he raises the dead, as we heard last week, but he is also coming to bring final judgment and call the whole world to account. And so if you are a follower of Jesus here this evening, is this reality central in your thinking? Are you ready, even willing, to speak of this reality and be convinced it's loving to do so? 
Has this reality gripped your heart and your life that it's actually shaping all of your being? Because having, been rem- having reminded them of the certain coming of the day of the Lord, Paul urges us to make sure we are ready and waiting for that day. But what does that actually look like? Because on the one hand, it's easy to laugh at the numerous Christians that get this wrong. Like in 1992, those who quit their jobs racked up thousands of debt on their credit cards because they were so sure they knew the day of the Lord was coming, only to be embarrassed. Or those, as the picture on the screen will tell you, those who take out rapture pet insurance. Because what happens to our pets who are left behind when Jesus comes is vital to our preparation. Now, you think it's a joke, right? But it's not. They even quote 1 Thessalonians on their webpage. It's easy to mock. But what does it actually look like for you and I to be ready? Because Paul makes it very clear in verses 4 to 8 that readiness shows itself. Now, he uses quite a mix of metaphors that can be, I think, a bit confusing on first reading. But what he essentially says breaks into two categories of who you are and how you should live because of who you are. Verse 4, read it with me. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to darkness. Now, darkness and light are commonly used metaphors in the Bible. Darkness is the dominion of sin. It's rejection of God. And light comes from God himself. It is to know God and then to live his way. In John 8, Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. And we see this darkness and light imagery uh, imagery beautifully played out in John 3. It's up on the screen, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So notice how clear Paul is about the identity or the status of a believer. You are not in darkness. You're children of the light. You're children of the day. You do not belong to night or darkness. As Peter says, to be a Christian is to be called out of darkness and into God's wonderful light. And because we are people who have come to know God, Jesus' return is not a surprise to us. We know it's coming. When God shines the light of the gospel into our hearts, we see everything clearly. We know God himself. We know ourselves. We know our world. We know right and wrong. We know why our world is the way it is, and we especially know where our world is going. The light that God shines in the gospel, it is revealing. It's piercing. It's exposing but it's also comforting. And so Paul reminds us of our identity as believers, that we are children of the light and of the day. Not so we can just ignore or forget about Jesus' coming, but so that we can see the world through the lens of that certain coming. 
To know that you are a child of the light is to know that the world is in darkness. It's to see the spiritual blindness and the sin and the apathy of our culture for what it really is. And this perspective, this reality, it's no small thing. It's to be given hope in the face of death. We heard that last week. It's to be given confidence in the face of chaos and strength in the midst of weakness. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. To know who you are in Christ changes everything. And we see this as Paul contrasts the behavior of the believer with the unbeliever, the light from the darkness. It's what he calls the others in verse 6. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. We are to be awake and sober as God's people. Uh, The two work together as this beautiful picture of someone who is careful to live in light of who they are in Christ. It's to have all systems turn on and functioning, someone who is calm and balanced, neither apathetic or distracted, focused and aware, but not panicking. And especially to be awake and, uh, awake and sober is not to be sleepy or drunk. Uh, Paul uses these metaphors not simply because they fit with his darkness theme of these things happening at night, but they are actually vivid pictures of being unaware, unprepared and not in control. Uh, before Bible college and ministry, I was a, a chef and every restaurant I worked in there was an issue with both of these subjects, sleepiness from the long hours and drunkenness because alcohol was a commonly used coping mechanism. But both of them were actually fairly tolerated and overlooked. However, I vividly remember uh, one morning our pastry chef uh, had started the day with drinking and he just didn't seem right. He had slurred speech, he had a general vagueness about everything going on, he couldn't remember recipes, he didn't really know what he was doing. But as he stood over the stove with a pot of boiling sugar syrup, swaying left and right, my boss pulled the trigger to send him home because he was a danger to himself and to us. And Paul is urging us to make sure that our Christianity is never like that. A spiritual life that is so lackluster, so oblivious to what's going on around us, or so compromised by the world that we might as well be asleep or drunk or both. It's why the armour language that Paul uses in verse 8 is so fitting. The Christian life is a constant battle for focus, to be alert and to be sober in every season of life. 
The armor language reminds us that it's a battle to live for Jesus, sometimes against our own laziness and our sinful desires. But as Paul also says in Ephesians 6, where he expands on this armor language, because there are also spiritual forces that are fighting against us. And so wearing the armor is a picture of readiness, of being prepared and equipped to live in the light, to live as a follower of Jesus, regardless of what comes against you. It's why the point of verse 8 is not to put on the armor, but to know that you're already wearing it. The NIV translates verse 8 a bit unhelpfully. The ESV has it better. It says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Uh, Paul comes back here to his favorite three-word summary of the Christian life, of what God calls us to, of faith, of hope, and of love. We saw this triad back in chapter 1, verse 3. And so notice he weaves it together. Faith and love become a double-strength breastplate, and the hope takes pride of place on our head as the helmet of the hope of salvation. And Paul comes back to this favorite triad because the Christian life is always about trusting God in the present, faith, loving others in the love God himself provides, and persevering until the end while we wait for Jesus. That's hope. And so by wearing this armor, you will then bear the fruit of faith and hope and love. That's what Paul said back in chapter 1. Listen to what he says about the Thessalonians. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it might seem to you a little bit underwhelming and unimpressive that Paul describes the life of readiness, of waiting for Jesus to come back as one that is consistent, steady, reliable, a life of faith and love and hope. And although that might seem a little bit rudimentary, but mundane, might be not be shocking or groundbreaking, I realise that the longer I'm Christian, the more I realise it's very rare. I also realise how impressed, how inspired I am to see it in other Christians. To see brothers and sisters in Christ who have faithfully toiled in following Jesus for decades longer than I have. Whose faith is not pushed around by circumstances or the trials of health or a pandemic or hardship. To see perseverance in the face of losing a spouse or even a child. Consistency in the face of opposition and pressure, even from family. And confidence in the face of real struggles. Isn't that what we should long for? To be consistent in our trust in Jesus? In our love of God's people and our hope of his return? Regardless of whether we're at uni or work, single or married, unemployed or overworked? Regardless of our health? Not wavering from week to week, not thrown around by any and every circumstance and not dictated to by what is happening around us? Is that the Christian life you have? Is that the kind of Christian life you are praying and longing for? Is your life steady and balanced? 
or a bit dozy and inebriated? Does your life consistently display to those who know you that you are ready? That you know who you are in Christ and your life shows it? If Jesus was to return today, would he find you consistent and ready or full of good intentions and excuses? Now, I know that is a hard question. Most of us will waver between spiritual excitement and exhaustion. We do struggle. And I think that's why Paul finishes this section on addressing how to live in light of the end, how to wait for Jesus' certain coming by finishing with assurance that when that day comes, our confidence is not grounded in how hard we have worked or how much faith and hope and love we've shown, but in Christ's finished and sufficient work. Confidence is found in looking to what Jesus has saved us from. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life can and should be marked by confidence at Christ's coming because Paul takes us to the very purpose of why God saved us. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. The day of the Lord will be a dreadful day of God's wrath. His just anger poured out on the world, but not for his people. It will be a day of salvation. This is what Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of the Thessalonians' conversion. They tell of how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. On the cross, Jesus took God's anger, God's wrath on himself in our place so that now that wrath has been satisfied, our confidence for the future is secure. His return will be salvation as we realize and experience the fullness of all that Jesus bought for us with his blood. And so if you are not yet a follower of Jesus tonight, reckoning with the reality of Jesus' coming and judgment can be and is confronting but it is to drive us to comfort in what Jesus has done for us. In turning to Jesus, we are saved from wrath, verse 9, and saved for relationship, verse 10. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Christ's death was for us, in our place, taking what we deserved to bring us to God, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Here Paul is deliberately connecting back to what he said last week in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. In chapter 4, verse 13, sleep is the language of a Christian who has died and is now waiting for Jesus to return and for the resurrection. And so Paul is saying that regardless of our physical condition, whether we are asleep, that is dead, or whether we are awake, that is alive, when Christ returns, we will all meet together with him in the air, and as he said last week in verse 17, to be with the Lord forever. Christ's death alone saves us from God's wrath to bring us to God. 
This is something we know and enjoy now through the gospel, but will ultimately be realised when Christ returns and we see God face to face. This is why we should never tire or let it become mundane to sing, my debt is paid and it is paid in full. It's why we should be praying and longing that as we come to Easter, we'd be captured again by the gospel of grace, that God himself stepped into our broken world in Christ so we could know and enjoy him forever. As John Piper says, the ultimate good of the gospel is seeing and savouring the beauty and value of God. The ultimate aim of the gospel is to display the display of God's glory and the removal of every obstacle to our seeing it and savouring it as our highest treasure. Behold your God is the most gracious command and the best gift of the gospel. But I think if we're honest, Our zeal and appreciation for what Christ has done and our confidence for the future easily wavers. And it's why Paul finishes this section the same way he did last week in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. We know it, don't we? We're easily distracted, often discouraged, The world can be a harsh place to live and any number of things can distract us and rob us of joy. And the God-given remedy to this? Encourage one another and build each other up. Paul borrows the language from construction to describe what our conversations are meant to do for each other. And so if we take that seriously, we'll, we'll know that we actually need each other. And we'll take time, we'll make it a priority to talk to each other and to talk to each other about Jesus. To go deeper into what we've heard in God's word or what you've been reading or studying. It'll mean being open and honest about how you're going. It'll mean being willing to potentially call out or even be called out for behaviour that is inconsistent with being a child of the light. Uh, Ed Welsh, in his great little book, Caring for Each Other, says this. The heart can be veiled and hard to know. We prefer to hide its less attractive thoughts and some of its hurts. But when we are willing to be a little more vulnerable and others handle our hearts with care, we discover that knowing and being known are part of our design. These conversations are a pleasure and they are essential if we are to care for help and encourage one another well. I hope you see that what we are about to do over supper and what we do at growth group every week or what we do over dinner or any time we meet, it's not trivial but vital. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, it's by speaking the truth in love that we leave the danger of spiritual infancy and immaturity and grow to mature. So look around the room. Look around your growth group this week at each individual. They need you and you need them. Because confidence in the face of death, readiness for the return of Christ, living as a child of light in a world of darkness, 
growing in understanding and appreciation for the cross. It is all promoted and achieved through our conversations. And isn't that profound? Living in light of the end is sustained as we encourage one another and build each other up. So let's pray that we take that seriously and that we do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, we know you. And that through his death in our place, we are assured of our welcome in your presence, both now and forever. Help us to long for his coming and to live in light of it. Ground us tonight in our rich and glorious identity as children of the light, so that we will wait faithfully for his return. And help us to speak the truth in love, to know and be known, to encourage and build each other up. Our Father, we confess that we have not done this. Whether through often fear or lack of love, we don't want to do this. So please move us now to love as we have been loved, to seek the good of others so that they and we will walk in faith and hope and love for the glory of our risen Saviour Jesus who will certainly come. We ask these things. Amen.